0: You're on the Plants Grow Here podcast. I'm Daniel Fuller. Come along with me as we enter a hidden world of deep horticultural, ecological and landscape gardening knowledge with featured experts, industry professionals and enthusiasts. Name a more iconic Australian plant than a eucalypt. I'll wait. If you've ever been to Australia, you've witnessed the majesty of some type of eucalypt up close, no matter which part of the country you are in. All this month, we're celebrating National Eucalypt Day, which is on the 23rd of March, with weekly Eucalypt episodes being dropped every Sunday. In this episode, Linda Baird, CEO of Eucalypt Australia, is going to introduce us to these wonderful native plants that exist within the myrtle family, myrtaceae, along with clistamines, lilypillies and melaleucas. Make sure you stick around to the end of this episode to get a sneak peek at the three other episodes in this series, as well as to learn a little bit more about how you can get involved in National Eucalypt Day. Please follow the Plants Grow Here podcast and share this episode with your friends and colleagues that are passionate about eucalypts because our native Australian plants need all the attention that they can get. G'day Linda, welcome to the show.
1: Hi Daniel, it's wonderful to be here. Thanks for having me on Plants Grow Here.
0: So, Linda, how can we recognise a eucalypt out in the field?
1: Well, the way that I suppose that I have kind of identified it now, probably the first thing we need to talk about is the fact that I'm not a eucalypt expert. <laughs> so there may well be people who are eucalypt experts that listen and go, hmm, that's an interesting response. <laughs> but for me, I think it's got to be the, the operculum. So for us, eucalypts take in the three genera of eucalyptus, carimbia, and angophora. So for both eucalyptus and carimbias, they both have an operculum, which is the cap that covers the flower. Well, it's kind of is the flower. (laughs) It's part of the flower. The operculum is made up. Of the outer sepals, the fused sepals and the fused petals, so it's really it's a really really interesting flower that you have on a eucalypt, and that cap comes off. So the word eucalypt means well covered, and that's what the operculum is. It covers the fruit or the the flower that's about to come out. So I think that's probably the biggest way of identifying a eucalypt. Obviously for Australians, you know, they're so iconic for us, we can really easily identify them in the landscape. We intuitively know the shape of the leaf, we intuitively see the gum nut, we uh, smell them, they've got just the most gorgeous smell, you know. It's the it's that fresh, clean um scent of the of the Australian bush. So but but if you actually now now this is where <laughs> identifying an Angophora, it becomes a bit interesting because being part of Eucalypt Australia, I am very fortunate to have some amazing experts on my board. One would be the premier eminent Australian expert in eucalypts, uh, Pauline Lardegas. And I forwarded her a picture of a tree the other day going, is this a Eucalypt? Question mark, question mark. And she said, yes, because it looked nothing like it to me. And it was an Angophora hispida, a dwarf apple. And so it didn't have the operculum
0: right, so the just going back to that operculum again, I guess you know our listeners might be familiar with a lot of flowers where the petals open up, whereas what you're saying is the as the bud blooms, it will push off the bud cap, so that's no longer necessary for the plant. I believe Charles Darwin hypothesized that the vegetative parts of the flower, which are the the sepals and the petals, as you've described, are for attracting insects and other pollinators. And I guess with the eucalypts, they have some really brightly coloured fuzzy stamens, which are the male reproductive organ of the flower.
1: Yes, correct. And so that outside is a—it's not needed for fertilising, so it just drops off and falls away and is not decorative. <laughs> Well, it is decorative. It's certainly decorative, but not in the way that the petals of a rose might be seen
0: as decorative. Yeah, great point. It's just different. Yeah, but we still get that decoration in the flower from the stamen. So, yeah, as you say, it's not really needed.
1: That's right. So, the fruit themselves can be incredibly highly ornamental. And um, mm. yeah, all the gum nuts, you know, as as you might see them in different. So a coral gum or, a, or an Iliari, you get the reds, the pinks, the square shape, the mottled, the warty, the long, the short, you know, the round. They, they're just so different and really define the different eucalypts as well. So they can be amazingly decorative. And then, as you said, you've got these incredible stamens which vary in colour, every colour of the rainbow but blue. Oh. <laughs> there's no blue.
0: I've never seen a blue one.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's a there's purple. <laughs> right. The Port Lincoln Mallee purple. You get orange, beautiful oranges in the Fisfolia, Carimbia Fisfolia, and in the Darwin Woolly Butt, which I think is the Miniata, isn't it? Yes, it is. <laughs> Eucalyptus Miniata. And you get the um, crazy, crazy colours, the fluorescent yellows of the and, and some of these are really interesting in the octopus malleys, and some of those where actually the. Sorry if you can hear some of that background noise, plane just flew over. <laughs> so, where you get the fruit and it fuses together and it causes and it brings about this pom pom effect. So, it looks like the tree is actually covered in pom poms. Mm. So, that's how I kind of see the uh, octopus mallee.
0: Right. I wanted to also mention something now I'm not sure if this is every eucalypt, but I'm pretty sure most of the time they've just got a single pistil in the middle of all the stamens. So it looks like a little stalk. It's a little bit firmer than the fuzzy stamens, but that is the female part of the flower, and it on the very tip of that is called a stigma, where the insects come and the, stick the pollen, stigma pollen. <laughs> that's how I remember the term stigma, is that's where our stigma pollen.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sounds perfect. You know, the only thing that you might want to talk about with the fruits is what happens to them at the end. So as they become the gum nut, they become like a seed bank that's stored in the canopy in some instances Mm. and in some instances stored in the leaf litter and in the ground, waiting, waiting for the right conditions
0: yeah and I think eucalypts are quite famous for having basically having fire as a part of their reproductive cycle in many but not all specimens.
1: Yes, absolutely correct. but with a really interesting twist, there is not a single eucalypt that needs fire, oh, according uh, to Dean Nicole yeah,
0: really. can you explain yeah. that
1: yeah i I read it. Okay. So, so there, there's actually no eucalypt that needs fire, but it can help the success in that it does create a massive release of seeds. And the other thing that the fire helps is it clears out the under, you know, the mm. underscrub, the, the, the leaf litter, the things that might stop those seeds. Ger- you know, they may germinate, but they may not be able to come to fruition. So it clears the ground, it allows those seeds to germinate and become saplings. So it can be useful. For some, it's an absolute disaster. So for some, if, if the fire comes too regularly in a pattern that precedes the, the maturity of the tree, you will never, it, it can't allow that tree to come to maturity to have fruit that is fertile and therefore it will not seed.
0: I suppose it depends on the evolutionary pressures on that particular plant.
1: Well, absolutely. So when you're looking at the cool temperate rainforests of the Dandenong Ranges, no fire Mm. to speak of. And climate change is obviously impacting and affecting that in terms of where the fire is coming. There are rainforests in, in this country that have never burned before that are now starting to burn.
0: Well, that's a huge issue.
1: Oh, it's a massive issue. It is absolutely massive because you're looking at mass tree extinctions. So one of the challenges in the Great Western Woodlands is that there's a lot of fire going on there in a pattern that hasn't been experienced before. And so the trees can't regenerate. They can't come to maturity fast enough. We might see the same thing in Gippsland here in Victoria. So there's a lot, of, a lot of challenges for trees that are not well adapted to fire. So um, I read from one of Dean's articles that 90% re-sprout after fire, but there's 85 species that only regenerate from seeds and they need fire longer than their generation, which could be 8 to 25 years. But we're seeing fires on fires on fires, sometimes 7 you know, within um, seven years.
0: Absolutely. And I'd recommend our listeners listen to episode 83, Plant Flammability and Planning for Fire with Leslie Corbett, who's the author of Safer Gardens, Plant Flammability and Planning for Fire, where she's done a lot of research independently to come up with a bit of a guide for planning for fire and creating a fire-resistant garden in Australia. And there are some of the things you'd be expecting such as, you know, removing leaf litter, chopping off lower limbs, stuff like that. And then there are also some other things that maybe you wouldn't have thought about, such as a number of eucalyptus species which are actually fire retardant, and they're not so prone to fire as we would have expected.
1: Daniel, that's really interesting that you're talking about fire as well. And I'm sure when Dean comes on and does podcast number three in the series, that he can have a bit of a chat about this as well. But uh, his thought is that the oil in the leaves, the content, it's only 1% to 2% of the leaf. It's not like, you know, when you think of if you've got a, (laughs) if if you added, say, 2% of oil to a cake and then you tried to set fire to it, (laughs) it wouldn't be that easy to set fire to, would it?
0: Not when whatever percentage of the plant is actually water.
1: Yes, that's right. (laughs) But obviously, a tree that's dried out from drought will will become more flammable because it's just got no moisture. So it might be the lack of moisture, not the oil, that's actually the issue.
0: And statistically, we have a lot of eucalypts too. So statistically, it's likely to be a eucalypt that does go up.
1: That's exactly right. From Dean's perspective, eucalypts don't burn any harder, any faster than than any other tree in our environment. That's my understanding.
0: Yeah, really looking forward to that.
1: He may some, say something else. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's not the first time we've had people uh, defending ukes on this channel. We also had Gary Moran in episode 34, Spotting Risky Trees, a.k.a. Widowmakers. Gary Moran from Twitter, you might know him as at Marty, made a mention of the fact that eucalypts really get a bad name for Dropping limbs and stuff like that, and they get called widow makers. But st- his point was that statistically, any branch that loses a limb is likely to be a eucalypt just because of how many there are in our gardens.
1: Yeah, that makes perfect sense, Daniel. It really does. And also, in terms of, well, obviously, there are some eucalypts that are really big and they're going to drop really big mm. branches when they do drop. Uh, you won't notice necessarily a small tree in a big wind, dropping a branch because it's just like, it's not much more than a twig, you know. But oh, when you get some of the the big trees, and of course, we've got such a, you know, a wide spread of Eucalyptus camaldulensis, the river red gum, and they are heavy timbers when they come down. And I imagine one of the reasons why that might have got a reputation is that people have a tendency to camp under them on river, on riversides. And, you know, you might, you might if the, the chances of one dropping a branch is really remote. But gosh, when they drop a branch, they're really dropping a branch. Mm. Well, one of the other things I, I kind of reflect on with trees is that trees are individuals. They're just like humans, right? They grow with weaknesses. And sometimes those weaknesses aren't evident for years and years and years and years. And, Eventually that weakness may manifest itself into something falling off, just like, you know, Hmm. we might get to a midlife crisis and (laughs) the wheels fall off. (laughs) And so I think these things are natural to expect. So I think it's good to be conscious of what you're planting where. And one of the things that we really try to encourage in the conversation and this celebration of National Eucalypt Day and Eucalypt of the year is really looking at the diversity of eucalypts and picking the right eucalypt for the right place. With 988 species, you've got huge you know, diversification in your eucalypts. You've got ones that come up to your ankles. You've got ones that are 100 metres high. You've got ones that are suited to you know, really dry, arid environments. And you've got ones that really need to be in a, in a temperate, cool, rainforest area. You have you know, so obviously you're not going to plant a, a massive tree in your front yard unless you've got a massive front yard. You know, <laughs> you, you know you, you're wiser to look at some of the beautiful ornamental and decorative species and just make sure that their habitat kind of matches your habitat. So I wouldn't necessarily say that, say, up in the Sherbrooke Forest in Victoria or in parts of New South Wales and Canberra and in Tasmania that a Western Australian going you know, that one from the Broome or mm-hmm. the Kimberley region is going to do well. But maybe out in the west of Melbourne where it is actually quite arid. So, you know, they, they might survive really well. So for anyone who hasn't been to the Melton Botanic Gardens who is here in Melbourne, you may not even realise that Melton has an amazing botanic garden full of these awesome and gorgeous decorative eucalypts and some really gorgeous endemic yellow box as well. So, So they've got a great collection and that can be, you know, just a great example of appropriate planting in appropriate areas.
0: The appropriate planting concept is really important to mention, Linda. We tend to say on this podcast quite often we want to put the right plant in the right place, for the right reason, with the right aftercare.
1: Yep. And that's something that we really, really want to have as our conversation.
0: That's really the beginning of a garden. You don't want to be putting in, as you said, something that's too big next to a you know structure or a fence or something like that or, God forbid, under a power line. Yes. <laughs> We do that in Melbourne, but I, I think when you plant something under a power line, it's easy to really criticize people for putting that in, especially the arborists who are actually quite skilled professionals. And if you get it in at the right time and you sort of can train it from when it's young for the branches to head off in certain directions, you actually can get away with that. But you need to be very careful with your plant selection again and how much money you're willing to invest in that plant over its life in terms of pruning.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. So one of the things that we would love to look at and which I've heard some great reports about is councils who are quite progressive in looking at their street trees and their street tree plantings, moving away from European trees and looking at our natives um, for every good reason, for habitat corridors, um, for pollinators, for insects, for mm. It's really interesting. I live in Port Melbourne, which our council has determined has a Mediterranean subclimate, so they planted olive trees. So we have 10 olive trees in our street and nothing lives in them. (laughs) We pick the olives and other people come from around the place to pick the olives, but... Uh, we also have a hakia, which is beautiful, a pin, pinball hakia. But bottle brushes are absolutely gorgeous. There's a couple there as well. We don't. Uh, we have a park nearest, which in their wisdom, they've finally started planting some absolutely beautiful eucalypts. We've got some gorgeous box in there, and and really, really happy about that. And I think that's been smart planting, but but we'd love to see some more conscious, uh, you know, re- conscious native plantings. As much as some people love the the big plain-shaped trees, nothing lives in them either. No. So,
0: yeah. Is, is that
1: really right, Daniel? You'd know this more than me. Does anything live in a plain tree?
0: Uh, I think that, look, I, I don't know specifically. I mean, certainly you'll see things living in them if they've got a hollow especially, but in terms of what eucalypts are offering, it's pretty much chalk and cheese as far as I can see because the eucs, well, one, they've adapted with our native wildlife and two, they've got these massive sugar bars in them that our native birds absolutely love and our native insects come to them. And I just think that the eucalypts are an absolute marvel in terms of ecology.
1: Yeah, I would agree with that as well.
0: Mm. One thing I'd like to bring up is an initiative by the Royal Botanic Gardens in Victoria, and they did an episode with us on episode 89. Karen Smith interviewed Dr. Megan Hurst and Matthew Henderson, and the gang from the RBGV also did a article for the Hort Journal called Raising Rarity as well. And basically what they're doing is they're taking rare plants out, you know, Aussie native endemic, especially Victorian plants, bring them into cultivation and then trying to get them out into Aussie gardens, which I think is a wonderful initiative because these are plants that weren't in cultivation before they started doing this.
1: I think that's a marvelous thing to be spending your time and energies doing. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. So I'd urge our listeners to go and check out episode 89 for that one. But I'd like to talk a little bit more about the ecology. Like, why do you reckon that euc's in particular are so beneficial to our native Aussie wildlife?
1: Well, as you said before, our whole evolution works as a works as with biodiversity and things evolve together. And, a classic example of that is the scribbly gum, isn't it?
0: That's a really good one. Let's go. Let's pr- talk about the scribbly gum.
1: Okay, let's talk about the scribbly gum. But. I'd like to say that I've ripped all of it out of the Syro website. So if you want to have a bit more information about the scribbly gum, there's some great information from Cyro. And the reason why Syro have it on their website, and this is for the eucalyptus, hemostoma. Now, somebody told me the other day with the Latin words, because I, I scratch my head uh, sometimes about how to pronounce things, they just say, just say them really quickly, and it sounds like Latin. So <laughs> eucalyptus hemostona. <laughs> uh endemic to the Sydney region. We all know the scribbly but the scribbly gum. Beautiful scribbles up and down the gum. So this is a moth, and this was quite cute. A fellow in the 1930s from Cyro discovered this moth. He sent it off to London. They identified us and they called this moth. The Ogmogra- Now, I, I should say this quickly, shouldn't I? Ogmograptus scribula.
0: <laughs> so I just thought
1: that was <laughs> the cutest thing. The Ogmograptus scribula. So, and then about in the late 90s and 2000s, they picked up again with this research and found that there was actually 11 different species of scribbly gum moth. And in the autumn, the exalade and the larvae developed through the winter and this is when they develop the scribbles. The larvae, they bore what we'd call a meandering tunnel, this is all from Zyro as well, through the bark at the level of the future court cambrium. So they first do this in long, irregular loops. Now all those 11 species of the moth, I understand, make a different pattern. So that's a bit different, isn't
0: it? So you can identify them based off the pattern.
1: Oh, I'm not absolutely sure of right. that, but maybe, maybe, <laughs> but I'm sure there's more to the story than that. And then later they have more regular zigzags they, and then they do a narrow, tube, a narrow loop. Now, when the um, cambium starts to produce the cork to shed the outer bark, it produces the scar tissue and what happens is that the larvae then tunnel back through this tissue and um, that that is a highly nutritious food for them, for the caterpillar which comes back. It then molts into its um, final stage with its legs. It's still a, it's eating its way back along the way that it's come. It grows rapidly to maturity and um, then it leaves the tree, spins a cocoon at the tree base and there it pupates. It leaves the tree, the bark cracks off and there you have The beautiful scribbles beneath.
0: If we lose that particular eucalypt, we're also going to lose that several species of moth.
1: Yes, although I do believe that they will scribble in some other trees as well. I see. They won't, it's not just the haemostoma, I believe, that they live in, but that is the most popular one.
0: That's a pretty good segue into talking about barks, Linda. Can you describe eucalypt bark? Like are all eucalypts similar in their bark or are there a few differences? Or
1: No, actually there's three types. I, now, for anyone that's loving their eucalypts, wants to do a little bit more reading and research, Dean Nicole has just written the most fabulous reference books. One of them is Smaller Eucalypts and the other one is called taller eucalypts. (laughs) And he's got in the intro to these books, just the most fabulous, fabulous information. So if anyone wants to have a little bit more of a read and a look into these things, I'd actually really, really recommend uh, Dean's books. And if you just do Google Dean Nicole, you'll be able to go onto his website where you can acquire his very, very fabulous books. So three types of art. You've got a non-shedding, you've got a shedding, and you've got this absolutely fabulous bark called Mini Ritchie. Now, anyone who has the eucalyptus Casey, now I call it Casey, other people call it cesiar. the Silver Princess in your yard, you will notice that the bark has like almost these like up and down longitudinally uh, curls. The bark doesn't fully come off; it just curls up, and and it's usually like a reddy brown. It's really so for me, the silver princess is as much the bark as it is those amazing silvery gum nuts, as it is its incredible pinky red flowers. It's just, it, it's a stunning tree. It can look a bit, well, it can look a bit messy, <laughs> for want <laughs> of a better word, a little bit scraggly, but I think all of its fine attributes totally overwhelm that. Mm. And, and it's a great the the silver princess because it's not got a dense habit uh, it's great to grow other things under so so loving that. so in terms of uh, non- shedding bark, this is usually rough. So when you think about an iron bark it it doesn't shed its bark does it it, it no. forms those really so. Iron. How could, you, how could you describe it any better way than an iron bark? Yeah. So, really deeply fissured, hard. Then you've got your boxes, uh, your yellow box, your blue box, short and tightly held, hard bark again, but really like almost like can be like little squares as well.
0: Um, one way that I like to identify boxes is that if you rub your hand along them, it sort of comes off in a bit of a powder. Whereas if some other eucalypts, you'll pull off the bark in a strip.
1: Yes. Such as
0: a kind of like a stringy bark, if you pull the bark off, which you should never do on a stringy bark, but if you pull the bark off, it'll come off in a strip as opposed to a box. If you rub your hand on it, it'll come off in like a dust.
1: That's right. So your stringy barks, that's your other non-shedding, fibrous and soft. Mm. So if you want to hug a stringy bark, you'll always have a soft landing there. (laughs) <laughs> Iron bark's not so good to hug. <laughs> and talking about boxes, if if any of you Victorian listeners want to go and see a truly spectacular box, down in the Parwin Gorge at the back of Werribee, they've got Werribee blue box down in there and some of the bark. It is just so decorative. It, it goes in swirls and twists and these beautiful trees that just kind of Curled into their environment, they're just stunning, and they've got this gorgeous round little leaf. It's it's a really really interesting eucalypt. so
0: It's actually one of my favourites because I work in their native environment, so I get to see quite a lot of them. And they are, like you say, the the bark and the leaves on those things is just gorgeous. The, the flowers they? are quite small and a bit nondescript. I think they're yellow.
1: Yeah, a bit not spectacular. Yeah,
0: <laughs> <laughs> but eucalypts are more than their flowers.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And they can be so many things, can't they? Their bark, Mm. their flowers, their habit, their height. they you know, how, you know, standing in a tall, you know, stand of Mount Nash, these amazing giants. You can just feel so humbled and calm and peaceful and connected, can't you? And safe. Couldn't agree more. Mm -hmm. Yeah, safe. That's how I... In those forests,
0: mm.
1: shedding, shedding smooth shedding bark. Barks. Is there a third one? Yeah, usually smooth. Uh, they'll come off in long ribbons, shorter strips, or flakes. So, and if you're looking for less flammable, maybe go more towards non-shedding. So your shedding ones can um, leave ribbons; these long ribbons of bark. In the tree, so so. Um, if we're thinking of flakes, we're thinking about snappy gums, and um, if we're thinking about long ribbons, Dean's got here a woodwardy, which is a lemon-flowered gum, manna gum, white gum, or ribbon gum. Yeah. So the Viminalis is a classic ribbon, long ribbon.
0: And that bark sheds off each year in a ribbon, and that's actually yes. a little bit healthier for the plant if you. I mean, you should never pull the bark off a plant, but a plant no that, these, these shedding barks, they can withstand that pulling off of the bark, even though they want to do it themselves. They don't want you to do it. But yeah. something like an iron bark cannot withstand you taking off that bark.
1: No, but even with a shedding bark, if it's not ready to come off, it's like, it can I be a bit gross? It's probably <laughs> like picking one of your scabs.
0: Right. You Before know, if healed. you pick a scab yeah.
1: and you bleed, you know? Mm. That, that would be like pulling a ribbon off before it was due to come off. So uh, your point. eucalyptus viminalis is your manicum, which is generally thought, now this is this is a bit of a myth, you, uh, it's koala favourite. But right. <laughs> as we know, koalas will eat the eucalypts that they favour in their environment. They will eat multiple different eucalypts depending what's around. A, a koala will favour... One tree over another tree, same species, but they'll just prefer one tree and koalas have been known to eat non-eucalypts. So, so yeah, but as a general rule, if you, you could always just say, oh, yeah, koalas and manicoms go together.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, koalas and eucalypts go together. <laughs>
1: yes, 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 but not exclusively.
0: <laughs> okay. Anyway, that's probably a topic for another episode.
1: I think you need a koala expert
0: yeah. for that one. <laughs> so, what's a malle uke? Oh,
1: mallees are fantastic. So, in terms of regenerating, there's, there's three main ways from a mallee root or a lignotuber, uh, from ep- epicormic shoots that lie under the bark, and from seed. So, you've got a number of trees that are called mallees. Not all eucalypts have. A melee root or a lignotuber, but there's quite a number that do. And what this is is this is a large root that grows underneath the ground, of course, and they can be enormous. You can literally coppice the tree, chop it right down at the ground, which is known as coppicing, and that tree will re-sprout extremely happily. Uh, one of the amazing Malleys that we have in Eucalyptivia is the Eucalyptus recurva or the Mongolo Mallee. It's in the southern highlands of New South Wales. There are said to be six, but Dean seems to think that maybe there's less. So there's some of these trees that may well be joined with a very large root underground. And um, the youngest estimate for these trees is around 10,000 years old and the oldest that I've heard is 13,000 years old. So these melly roots in the ground are just allowing this tree to regenerate, regenerate. Fire, cropping, doesn't matter, regenerate. So Basistos, for example, use blue melly for their Australian-grown eucalypt oil, and they will literally go along with a harvester, chop them all off at the base, and wait a couple of years for them to grow again
0: hmm.
1: they're amazing trees
0: other types of eucalypts cannot actually rise again once you coppice them
1: that is exactly right
0: so what are some of the major threats facing eukes?
1: climate change habitat destruction they'd be the two that i'd hmm. say would be the major threats so habitat destruction in terms of so you've got your 988 species They have developed in response to their environment. They sometimes, they're only in small pockets. I was talking to Cathy Cavallo, who's from our media partner, Remember the Wild today, and she was telling me about the Carimbia fuscolia, which is, of course, the beautiful flowering gums that we have flowering all around the country at the moment. They're absolutely stunning. They're a Western Australian eucalypt. And their natural habitat is actually quite small. So we've been able to take them and grow them in other areas, but their natural habitat is quite small. So if they hadn't have been picked up for their absolutely stunning display, they may well be in danger. We have lots and lots of pockets of these eucalypts that when you, when you take away land and corridors and you, and you create a disjointed environment, they won't necessarily be able to regenerate. And so there's real challenges with that. So habitat destruction is one thing. Climate change is the other. One of the things they're really talking about at the moment is about how the trees need to move from the north to the south to cope with our rising heat. They're talking for Melbourne. I think it's that by 2050, they're expecting if things don't change, that we'll have the climate of Mildura and by 2100 we'll have the climate of Alice Springs if things don't change or are reversed. So how is a regnance going to exist in this environment? It just simply can't. There's a a stand of eucalypts down in Hobart on the Derwent River. There are eucalyptus morisbii or morisbees gum and they've been clobbered by all sorts of things. Rabbits, you know, have been eating mm. them. Um, but you can't go much further south than Hobart. So we've got, you know, some real challenges for some of these trees. Um, we are seeing um, some great actions being taken in the universities, botanic gardens, herbariums, and uh, so so we um, hopefully these trees will see further life.
0: Yeah. Well, all we can do is plan for the future and do our best because it's, yeah, it is a scary thought, Linda.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And, of course, the other thing that climate change is producing is fire, repeated fire. And as we spoke before, and when a tree is not able to reach maturity, then it can't regenerate.
0: So can you tell us a little bit about Eucalypt Australia? How did the organisation get started and what's your vision and mission and what do you support?
1: Right. So Eucalypt Australia is a grant-making charitable trust. We were very, very fortunate really. We, the beneficiaries of a will, there was a Norwegian forester that came to Victoria uh, in the, you know, early, you know, mid-last century. And he fell in love with the silver top ash. He was a forester. He mapped out the forests. He just fell in love with the trees. He later worked for APM. Sometimes when they were looking at a property, maybe they didn't want it. He managed to buy it, and he created quite an estate for himself. He had a you know a house in Melbourne. He had a wife, but no children. Uh, his wife left the planet before him. And he went back to Europe and he rejoined with his brothers, I think in Spain or somewhere. And he just didn't feel like he belonged there. He just felt like his home had become Australia. His heart was here with the trees. And in his will, he left the money to the Forestry Commission to plant a plantation of silvertop ash. Now, if they hadn't have done that within a six-year time frame, his will outlined that the money would be put aside in a trust for the promotion, education and cultivation of Euclid's. And so that has become our mission. The money was pulled out into a trust by order of the Supreme Court of Victoria. Our trustee is DELP and so we are on a mission to help people really celebrate such an iconic tree and to help you know, really enrich the conversation around Eucalyptus and uh, the appreciation of the diversity, the beauty, their place in our uh, history, their place in our future, their place in our culture, uh, the usefulness uh, in every way, both in terms of urban gardens, parklands, forests, timber, a beautiful art, how they make people feel, how they help people connect with nature, being as a renewable resource, um, being a carbon sink. There's so many different things. And, And really remarkably, being a habitat as well. And one of the things that is probably missing for a lot of people out of the conversation is just how useful a dead eucalypt is. So once they've gone through their life cycle, a lot of eucalypts stand for many years, and they do take approximately a 100 years to develop the hollows that are just so, so needed by owls and cockies and parrots and and other animals, uh, the Leadbeater's possum, for example, that tiny little ferocious <laughs> possum that's up in the high country. Gorgeous little thing that it is. and. And that we need to, where we can, leave the deadies standing. Let them have their natural life cycle until they're ready to fall and be the habitat of the undergrowth.
0: That's such a great point about the dead eucalypts because, yeah, that's something we like to talk about quite a bit on this podcast as well. Mm. Why do we celebrate National Eucalypt Day every year?
1: National Eucalypt Day is really just a great conduit for Developing that discussion, that exploration, really embracing the iconicness of our eucalypts. Uh, National Eucalypt Day is the birthday of Bianca Dahl. And we, it, it's really taking on a life of its own, which is wonderful. It's becoming more than a day, it's becoming a festival. Uh, we have, because often, you know, if it falls in the middle of the day, you know, it's not necessarily the best timing for people to go into the forest and enjoy eucalypts or to their local nursery and participate in a propagation workshop or or you know, to go to a jewellery making workshop or a botanical dyeing workshop, or there's so many different ways that we are opening National Eucalypt Day to really embracing the eucalypt. We also have a medal. That we award, and um, so on the twenty third of March, National Euclid Day, we will also be revealing the Dahl Medalist for the year. Uh, last year's was Dorothy Steen from the University of Tasmania, who's done some amazing, amazing work with eucalypts over her life, and uh, we'll be revealing who which tree has won. The eucalypt of the year. So that's a public poll that happens through, it starts mid-Feb and goes through till the 20th of March. And we have 25 different eucalypts that people can choose from. And if their favourite species isn't there, we allow a free field so that you can have your eucalypt. But we've tried to really look at the diversity of eucalypts in terms of heights, states, coverage, crazy flowers awesome habitat we've got the you know the amazing port lincoln melly we've got everything from the regnants in there to the recurva which we've spoken to about before that amazing ancient melly so so we really love the conversation that happens out of eucalyptus of the year as well and uh, all these events that are happening around the country to really celebrate our iconic eucalyptus
0: yeah, absolutely. I mean, if we're going to want to preserve these beautiful things, we're going to have to have a bit of passion in the, in, the, in the community.
1: Yeah, that's right. And I think the passion is definitely there. We see it in the gum nuts. And I think for most people, if you ask uh, pretty much anyone travelling overseas, what are, what are the key things that make Australia Australia? They're going to talk about a number of things. They're going to talk about Vegemite and beaches and they're (laughs) going to talk about eucalypts, you know, and our beautiful trees and the smell of the eucalypt forest. One of the things that we're really wanting to engage and uh, create discussion around is how we really create this feeling of home for people that are new to Australia as well. And for people who are making their home here and helping them understand and celebrate the bush and not fear it, you know, because when we talk Mm. about the Australian bush, look, everything's prickly. Everything (laughs) bites you, you know. (laughs) You really have to. You have to go prepared into the Australian bush. So, (laughs) you know, it's probably not the best thing to go out there in a pair of flip flops and a pair of shorts and no air regard or. Or, uh, or uh, you know, no sun protection and uh, don't plan to sit on the ground. Something's going to bite you, you know. <laughs> so, so that's uh, one of the things that we're really looking forward to, creating a lot of discussion around as well. And really exploring the, the Indigenous relationship with the eucalypts. There's so many aspects of that. It's, for example, uh, how much the language has flavoured the eucalypts as well. So uh, my understanding is that the Wemba Wemba word for water is Mali, M-A-L-I, and that has become the Mali, the Mali root, the Mali tree, you know, the ones with the tubers. And there's great stories of the, uh, you, you spoke about manipulating trees earlier um, so that they avoid power lines. Well, my understanding is that throughout the great Western woodlands, There are a number of trees that have been shaped so that they collect water and so they're known as water trees and they actually provide wells of water so that when the people are crossing through the country, they know where the water is. Absolutely fascinating, just amazing. So we're really hoping to promote those aspects as well.
0: Linda, I always like to ask our guests at the end of each episode, is there anything else you'd like the listeners to know about? Now, this doesn't have to be on topic. It can be anything you think people should know about.
1: The one thing you didn't ask is what what are my top three eucalypts?
0: Yeah. Well, I thought we'd already covered so many, but tell me, what are your top three?
1: Yeah, we'd covered, no, it's the Regnans, the Port Lincoln and the Recurva.
0: So tell us about the regnans, because that is a that you've mentioned them a couple of times, and I, I think we probably need to talk about what the regnans are, because they are quite spectacular.
1: Yes, yes. So the eucalyptus regnans is now the mantle has been cast into doubt, and I'm not very happy about it, oh. of being the tallest flowering tree in the world. Now we're not going to mention the other tree. It's in Papua New Guinea. It doesn't matter, it's relevant. <laughs> 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 And I think the fact that they cut down in Victoria, this is like in the 1800s or something, they cut down 140-metre trees so that they could measure it. Oh, as you do? Yeah, I think the mantle of the tallest tree in the world actually still belongs to the Eucalyptus regnans. I really do. Mm. It's just that it's not necessarily living. So Mount Nash for Victorians, Swamp Gum, for Tasmanians, just the most amazing tree. So, um, you know, 85 to 100 metres, not unusual at all. If people really want to see the most magnificent Eucalyptus regnans and just quietly, I'm sure it doesn't matter if I say this, but it has my vote for Eucalyptus of the Year and I suspect I'll keep voting for it until it wins I'm there. <laughs> My early recollections in my childhood are of going into the Sherbrooke Forest and having these beautiful family picnics. it It was just fabulous fun. And being amongst these absolutely gorgeous giants, cool, gorgeous, calming, just loved it, loved it, loved it, loved it. So that's probably where my heart belongs in terms of my favorite eucalypt, But over Easter, we got to go down into the Styx Valley in Tasmania and they have managed to conserve a portion of the Styx Valley. It is has logging coos all through it, which is really interesting. However, there is an area and it's got Gandalf stuff in it. It's got the Twin Towers. It's got these <laughs> incredible trees. And they they measure seventeen meters in their circumference. You know, wow. down at the base. That's massive. They, they are incredible, incredible trees. There's a walkway that you can go around, but just quietly. The most magnificent trees are not at that walkway. There are some magnificent trees there, but the most magnificent ones you have to scout around and find, do a little bit of research and you'll be able to find them. They are just—they blow your mind. How big, how old, how much they've seen. They rise up through the canopy; the tops fall out of them, mm-hmm. you know. So, and uh, that's quite interesting from a from a timber harvesting perspective too, because um, the the trees that can be brought down are determined by volume and height, and sometimes if a top. Falls out of a regnance it can suddenly come within harvestable um, parameters, and so that that can be really interesting as well. And um, we have nothing nothing against using timber as an organisation. We I, I believe that using timber is a beautiful, beautiful research a resource in um, furniture and in. You know, when you when you have a natural native timber floor, it's it's beautiful. We built our own house and um, we've used uh, tassie oak on our floors, and it just is so beautiful underfoot compared to a concrete floor. You can walk around on it in bare feet, and you won't have those same maybe hip and knee problems that you might get (laughs) from a concrete floor. So. So which was my major impetus to go back to a house on stumps rather than a, than a house on a slab. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, that, uh, that these trees down in Sticks Valley, they're just amazing. They're beautiful.
0: Linda, thank you so much for a great episode. Uh, I can't wait to have you back on the show again.
1: Oh, thank you, Daniel. It's been an absolute pleasure. I've loved having this conversation. I really thank you for having me on and for actually putting together the four part podcast series on the eucalypts as a celebration of National Eucalypt Day. I really feel that people are going to learn so much out of this series, and I'm really looking forward to hearing Roz's episode in the next week, Dean's the week after, and a very, very special guest. That we do know who it is, but we can't divulge it. <laughs> That's going to be in the fourth podcast, but stay tuned because they are one of the best speakers and will be they will have you in raptures.
0: Check out the show notes for relevant links and follow Eucalypt Australia on social media to stay educated and inspired. As Linda mentioned, you can look forward to learning about Eucalypt chemistry with Professor Ros Gledo, whom you may remember from episode 38, Plant Biology Basics, as well as Eucalypt Mythbusting with Dean Nicole, and one mystery episode with a very special guest on the final Sunday of this month. In the meantime, scroll through our back catalogue and find an episode you listened to ages ago, because it's probably time you revisited some old content that you're starting to forget. It's surprising how much benefit you can get from giving an episode a second listen if you're serious about learning the art and science of horticulture.